The following is a podcast from Live It, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.liveitmke.org. Again, our theme for worship tonight, the theme for the message tonight is other focused. The gospel makes us a people for others, and the lesson on which the, the message will be based is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Here's what the Apostle Paul has to say in the first chapter of Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called into the Christian faith. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. God shows the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God shows the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God shows the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, the things that amount to nothing in the world's eyes. He chose them to nullify, to render ineffective, the things that the world thinks are something so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast only in the Lord. This is God's word. In the uh, early to mid-90s, there was a wave of restaurants that opened that became really popular here in the U.S. Uh, it wasn't just one brand of restaurant, but it was a number of different restaurants where uh, it became very popular uh, that the waiting staff would be very insulting and rude toward the restaurant patrons. Okay? Some of you might have been to some of these uh, restaurants before. Kind of the, one of the originals was a diner down in Chicago called Ed DeBevick's. And uh, they would, you'd go into the restaurant and you'd order and they would make fun of the way you look, they make fun of the way you talk, they make fun of what you order and how you order. Uh, they just insult you the entire time. And uh, you think, why on earth would that, why would this be a thing? Why would, why would people pay to have this as a thing? And I think, I think the appeal to it is the idea that, you know, in a, in a super hypersensitive society, in a hyper-politically correct culture, uh, when you get somebody like a waiting staff who's just saying the first thing that comes through their head to you, even if it's just super rude, uh, the world today actually finds that not only kind of entertaining, but maybe even a little bit refreshing. And I think the joke, uh, the basic joke behind it then is that Americans, we like the things the way we like our things, and therefore like when we're getting kind of persnickety ordering off of a menu exactly the way we want things to be, we start to order around servers as, they were ser as though they were servants. Like we were just, you know, these proud kings and queens uh, and they were getting our food at our beck and call. And at that, at that point, if that's the case, we probably deserve to be knocked down a few pegs. The Apostle Paul, when he writes some of his letters in the New Testament, sometimes plays the role of like the Ed DeBevick waiter. He sometimes is, sounds a little rude and a little harsh, especially in his letter to the Corinthians. The Corinthians, more than any other church that he writes to, uh, are very worldly. They're massively full of themselves. 
They consider themselves to be tremendously open-minded, very sexually progressive, very academically enlightened. They consider themselves to be very much movers and shakers in society, okay? And so the Apostle Paul has to go to them and not, he's not knocking them down a peg just because he wants to make them feel lowly, uh, but he's stating the reality of their humble origins. He says, look, even by your own estimation, even by the world's measurements, when I met you guys, you weren't much of anything. Okay, look at what he says at the beginning of our text here tonight. In verse 26, he says, not many of you were wise by human standards. He doesn't just say by God's standards. He says, even just by human standards, you guys weren't really all that wise. I've seen smarter. I've known better. Uh, not many of you by human standards were very influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. Movers and shakers. He might as well say, uh, some of you had some bad haircuts and you were carrying around an extra 10 pounds or so or whatever else. Like, he's just being rude, it sounds like. He literally says, you weren't that smart, you weren't that popular. And in the world's eyes, you were kind of a nobody. Why would Paul be so rude? And for that matter, uh, the New Testament says that the Apostle Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this isn't just Paul's thought. This is God speaking through Paul to the Corinthians. Why would God be so rude-sounding? It's because God hates human pride. More than anything else, God hates human pride. Now, I get that, you know, in 2017, we have a very, it's a very prevalent concept of a God of love and a loving, uh, merciful God. And therefore, anytime you say anything about that loving God hating anything, people start to bristle a little bit and think, oh, are you sure? You got to understand, uh, to truly love something, you have to proportionately hate something else. That's always the case. Uh, if you really love children, you have to hate child abuse and neglect. If you really love intimacy, you have to hate infidelity. If you really love clear-minded, sober thinking and wise decision-making, you have to hate alcoholism and drug dependency. Uh, if you really love freedom, you have to hate slavery. You understand what I'm going with this? Love, to truly love something proportionately, you have to hate something else. Hatred is essentially the reflex of a deeper love. And therefore, God, in order to truly love us, he has to hate human pride. Why? Because we were built to be dependent on him. And human pride says we are self-sufficient and we can take care of it by ourselves. Nothing more than that stands in the way of a healthy relationship with the God who created us, redeems us, and sustains us. So, the Apostle Paul has to tell them about their humble origins. He's not just trying, you know, if you state truth into somebody's life for the purpose of tearing them down, that of course is unloving. But if you speak truth into somebody else's life, even if it feels like harsh truth, in order to ultimately build them up, that actually is loving. And so what does Paul do? He says to the Corinthians, let me just remind you real quickly why God chose you in the first place. He didn't choose you because of your greatness. He chose you because of his greatness. Which is actually very comforting because if he chose you because of your greatness, then any time uh, in life that you perform poorly, you have reason to doubt whether or not God still loves you. But if he chose you because of his greatness, then no matter what, you can always be confident in his love. 
Look at what the Apostle Paul says. God chose you by grace, and here's why. He says, God chose the foolish things of the world in order to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, the things that are not, in order to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Here's the thing. What's healthy for the world is that not that they see how great you are and sing your praises. What's healthy for the world is that they see how great God is and they worship and they praise him. So if God just gives you a ton of talent and he lets you accomplish some extraordinary things, what's the rest of the world going to say about that? They're going to say, well, yeah, of course. Look how talented they are. Look how beautiful. Look how powerful. Look how intelligent. Look how wealthy. On the other hand, if God holds back uh, some of our skill sets and gives us cause to be humble, and maybe we're not the most talented in the world, but God then accomplishes something spectacularly through us, what's the rest of the world going to say? How did that happen? There's got to be more than meets the eye when it comes to these Christians. And this has always been the case in the course of the Christian faith. I could walk you through all of Scripture and you see how God uses the lowly in order to shame the proud. I could walk you through church history. In fact, uh, let's just do that real quick. Uh, there was a guy in the early Christian church, one of the probably top three to five most influential early church fathers. His name was Tertullian. He says one of the reasons why he investigated the Christian faith in the first place was because of some of the things that he heard the Romans, the non-believers, saying about the Christians. You know what he heard them saying on multiple occasions? He said, just look at how they love one another. There was nothing else about them that was particularly noteworthy. They weren't particularly uh, talented or intelligent or wealthy or beautiful or anything else. The only definable characteristic in everybody's mind, even the non-believers' minds, was look at how they love one another. In fact, so much of the world saw them that way that the people, some people actually despised them for that. They said these Christians amount to nothing. There was a philosopher at the same time of Tertullian in the second century AD. His name was Celsus, and he was very antagonistic towards the Christian faith. And he said, look, because Christians admit that ignorant people are worthy of their God, Christians show that they want to convert only the foolish, the dishonorable, and the stupid, which to him meant the slaves and the women and the little children. If your God is accessible to those individuals, I want no part in that God, Celsus said. He didn't understand what grace means. Now, he was, he was a mover and shaker in Roman society. Do you think the cultural elites, the general disposition has changed significantly over the course of, of two millennia? I don't think so. Uh, the guy I personally think shaped 20th century thought more than anybody else is a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, and in a book called The Antichrist, uh, late 19th century, early 20th century is what he, when he worked. Uh, but he wrote, you know, I despise Christianity as a favoring of the botched and the degenerate and a despising of the rich, scholarly, noble, healthy, and strong. Nietzsche's wrong. Christianity did not favor the lowly. It just didn't favor the healthy and the wealthy and the beautiful and the talented like the rest of the world naturally does. And to him... That was pitiable. Do you think we've moved much? This is just the past hundred years or so. Do you think we've moved much beyond here? I could share with you a bunch more quotes from more modern uh, leading thinkers. I'll, I'll just keep it at one. 
because uh, it's one of my favorite ones and it's so incredibly blunt. Uh, in the early 90s, uh, a guy by the name of Ted Turner, who is the media mogul who runs TNT and TBS and, and CNN and all that, uh, he was giving a speech at the American Humanist Association at a convention and uh, he very famously quipped, Christianity is a religion for losers. Not many of us are ever going to amount to much of anything in the world's eyes. Not many of us are ever going to progress beyond pawns on the chessboard of life. And you know what? I don't care. I don't, I don't know that he's right, but I don't care if he is right. Because my boast is not in myself. As a Christian, your boast is in the Lord. I would much rather be lowly in the world's eyes and used to shame the proud than to be a real mover and shaker and boast in myself in the world's eyes only to be shamed by God. Furthermore, you know what? The Apostle Paul is not saying in this text that no Christians have any talent. You notice when he talks to the Corinthians, he doesn't say none of you had any power or intelligence or beauty in the world's eyes. What does he say? He says, not many of you were super talented or wealthy or whatever in the world's eyes. That's because God doesn't discriminate against the talented or the wealthy or the beautiful either. Christianity, what he's saying here, is not inclusion and click by talent or by merit. Christianity is inclusion by grace. The ultimate evidence of that the Apostle Paul works his way in his logic on this, and he says, the ultimate evidence that you have no reason to boast is the greatest thing that you have, eternal salvation, has nothing to do with your own personal doing. Look at what he says in verse 30. He says, it's because of him. It's entirely because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. He who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Now, I'll tell you, I had to look at that last phrase for a couple hours to figure out what he was talking about here because every once in a while, pastors too, you look at the Bible and sometimes it just sounds like churchy words. Righteousness, holiness, and redemption just kind of sound like churchy words. There's a distinction here that he's making. What is he talking about? Uh, righteousness is a status change that you have. God has already declared you to be not guilty of your sins for the sake of Jesus Christ. In the blood of Jesus Christ, he has already made you righteous. He has made you right with God in your past. Right now, none of us would admit that we are perfectly holy. In the present time, God continues to work on your holiness. The Holy Spirit continues to progress you in what's called your sanctification. You're growing in Christ's image. You're growing in holiness. That's your present. Now, the future is your redemption. Jesus already paid what was necessary for your redemption in the past, but how many of us are still suffering under sin and Satan and death? All of us. Which means that in one respect, our redemption is not yet fully complete. Until Jesus comes back, until our bodies are raised from the grave, and we live in the world that has been redeemed from the shackles of, of the slavery of sin, we haven't fully experienced redemption. So he's talking about righteousness, holiness, redemption, your past, your present, and your future. And which of those are your doing? None of them. The whole process of your salvation is a gift of grace. And Paul's point is this. If the greatest thing that you have, the entirety of your salvation, is a gift from God, then you know what? 
all the other things that are underneath that in life, all the other different blessings, guess what? Those are simply gifts that are coming from the Father of the heavenly lights as a generous gift down to you in his grace as well. If that's the case, if every good thing we have truly is a gift, then he concludes in this chapter, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts go ahead and boast in the Lord. Only in the Lord. I want to say one other thing about verse 31 here too. You notice he doesn't say don't boast. He doesn't say don't boast. Some of you actually need to boast a little bit more. Some of you don't know how to take a compliment. Uh, some of you don't ever celebrate victories in life. Some of you, uh, if you work really hard and you accomplish something, and somebody else tries to encourage you on that, the way you talk about it, it's almost like it was just an accident or random blind luck. You need to boast. Just don't boast in yourself. One of the reasons that God gave you a mouth in the first place is so that you would boast, so that you would tell of the mighty things that he has done for you in your life. So boast, but boast in the Lord. The psalmist says in Psalm 78, let me boast of your power to the next generation. Some of you need to learn to boast in the Lord a little bit more. Others of us, others of us are the other side of this. Some of us have no problems boasting. And there's nothing wrong with our joy. And there's nothing wrong with the truth that we tell. The problem is that sometimes we plagiarize the credit for it. And somebody might say, you know what, yeah, I am proud of the things that I've accomplished, but I accomplished those things. Well, wait a second. Who gave you the skill set to accomplish those things? Who gave you the willpower and the work ethic to do those things? Who gave you the opportunities to do those things? Not everybody in the world is afforded those exact same skills and opportunities and work ethic and so forth. So at least acknowledge the grace of, of those gifts as well. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Okay? This is the teaching so far. You need to boast. Just don't boast in yourself. Boast in the Lord. Now, what does this mean? Um, our theme, we said for today, is other focus. And you might say, well, what does not boasting in, in, in myself have to do with an other focus? Well, the connection is actually pretty simple. If you're completely full of yourself, if you're boasting in yourself, you know what you can't be full of? Anybody else. So if you look at your calendar and your calendar is full of you, you don't have any time for anybody else. If you look at your budget and your budget is full of you, you don't have any capacity for any generosity to anybody else. If, if you are constantly worried about yourself, you don't even have a single thought to spare for somebody else. See, if your life is full of you, if you're full of yourself, you can't be full of, of anyone else. Now, that sounds a little bit like shaming, so let me put a little bit more positive spin on this. Uh, in the early 20th century, there was a Russian scientist by the name of Alexei Ukhtomsky. There's 100% no chance that I am pronouncing that correctly. It's something like that. That's what it looks like on paper. I'm just sounding it out. But I've actually heard the guy referenced on several different medical, uh, like modern medical dramas. Uh, Alexei Uktomsky uh, continues to be uh, referenced in science even to this day because the impression he left was a theory called the theory of dominant focus. The theory of, he was again a physiologist, he worked uh, with a human nervous, studying the human nervous system, 
And uh, he, he figured out that the human brain can only process one stimuli at a time. So you can experience many things at the same time, but your brain has to naturally focus only on one. So for instance, when it comes to something like pain, uh, you can experience multiple pains at the same time, but you can't, your brain can't focus on all of them at the same time. So if you went to the doctor and uh, they asked you, you know, about, let's say you've been having some problems with headaches, and they said, well, what's your pain level from a one to 10? And you said, a six. And you said, and I also recently sprained my ankle, uh, and my pain for that is probably on a scale of one to 10, it's maybe like a three. If the doctor asked you what's your overall pain at, you would not say a nine. A six and a three, well, that would make nine, right? No, you would say six. Because your brain, it's part of the brilliant way that God designed us, your brain is inclined to, to weed out the other uh, stimuli. It only focuses on the dominant excitable stimuli, okay? You cannot register multiple pains according to your brain at the exact same time. Now, the same God who created the physical world also created the emotional, the psychological, the spiritual, and the relational realm as well. And therefore, a lot of times that the, the physical principles that we see overlap into those other realms. I believe this is absolutely the case with us psychologically and emotionally too when it comes to pain. Your brain cannot register multiple pains at the exact same time. It has to focus on one stimuli. So what does this mean? You know the fastest way to get over some of your own problems and your own worries and your own concerns in your life right now? Empathize. Think about somebody else's pain ahead of your own. Occupy yourself with the hurt that other humans are going through. And you will become somewhat numb to your own personal pains. It's part of God's brilliant other-focused medication. I've, I've shared with you guys before that I've had battles with depression throughout my life. I've never uh, gotten depressed because I was so focused on the needs of other people. I've gotten depressed when I was really focused on my own wants and desires. I've gotten depressed when I was constantly comparing myself to others. But I've never gotten depressed when focusing simply on the needs of others. You show me a person who is obsessed with themselves, and I don't even care if they have a high opinion of themselves or a low opinion of themselves. You show me somebody who is obsessed with themselves, and I will show you somebody that who either right now or very soon will be a miserable soul. On the other hand, you show me somebody who's almost completely forgotten about themselves because they're so other-focused, and I will show you somebody who's been liberated. My greatest evidence for this is none other than the Son of God. The single only other truly focused person to ever walk planet Earth was Jesus Christ. And just look at what he says and does in his final hours. Just take the last 24 hours. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's so concerned about the satisfaction of his Father's will that he says, you know what? Father, not my will, yours be done, which gives him the resolve to go to the cross. And then he's, when he's on the cross, at the hour of deepest agony, the pinnacle of pain, what's hurting him at that moment? Everything has to be hurting. Everything's got to be painful. His head's got to be hurting from that crown of thorns. His back's got to be hurting from all those whippings. His pride has got to be hurt from the betrayal of some of his best friends. And his sense of justice has to be hurting because he's just gone through this massive mistrial at the hands of the Romans. 
So what does he do? Does he cry out about all those things? Nope. You know what he cries out about? He looks at his mom and he says, woman, I need you to get taken care of. And he directs her to John, the disciple, his friend. He says, this is now your son who will take care of you. The very people who are crucifying him, he's so concerned about their spiritual welfare that he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's what's hurting me right now. All he could think about was somebody other than himself. And because he thought about you and me ahead of himself, because he was just so obsessed with us, you know what he's done? Our sins of self-obsession, he's completely washed away and paid for. And they are vanished in the mind of the divine. When you see the other focus of your Savior, it will melt your heart in such a way that you will become more like him. Believe that Jesus has done everything necessary for you because he was so obsessed with you. He's done everything necessary to take care of your eternal welfare. Believe that he continues to be so smitten with you and that he's constantly interceding for you and he guarantees that every single need that you actually have in life, he will make sure is taken care of. And if you believe those things, guess what that does? That frees up your time, that frees up your money, that frees up your energy. It doesn't have to be about you anymore. Now you can invest all of that in the welfare of others. What would that look like? Just humor me for a moment and imagine what that might look like. What if we were so other-focused that um, every choice that we made seemingly was with the interests of others ahead of self? What if you were so other-focused that you saw a family with little kids and you said, you know what, I'm just going to babysit for them free of charge because they could probably use a night, night off? What if you were so other-focused that you said, you know what, I have all eternity to work on my projects and my hobbies and stuff like that. I can give a couple hours a week to maybe come into our school after school or in the evening and tutor a kid on some homework and make an impact that way. I passed fourth grade math. I can probably give a pointer here or there. What if you were, uh, and I were so other-focused that when somebody else deeply offended us, all we did is we just forgave them? We didn't go around and just tell everybody else about how deeply offended we were. What if you and I were so other-focused that generosity to us was not merely lending a tool to a neighbor who was working on a project, but going over to that neighbor's house and saying, you know what, uh, if both of us work on this, we can get it done in half the time. Um, what if we were so other-focused that you're constantly working towards making new, fee new people feel welcomed and old people feel valued? Or if husbands were constantly working to make their wives feel loved and wives were constantly working to make their husbands feel respected. Or what if we did this collectively? What if as a family we said, you know what, this year is not actually going to be about us. We're going to make this entire year about a, somebody else, some other family out there, and we're going to try to meet their needs at every level. What would that even look like? I don't even know how to imagine that. What would it look like if we as a congregation here at St. Marcus said, we don't exist for the purpose of ourselves, we exist as God's people to be a blessing to our community, we exist to be a blessing to our city. What would that look like for us? And what would it look like if you never told a single person about any of it because it wasn't about you, it was simply done out of gratitude and thanks for the God who makes sure that all of your needs guaranteed will be taken care of. Other focus 
thinking about and loving others ahead of self. That's a different way of saying grace. Grace is the single most stunningly alien attribute that exists on planet Earth. And grace is the thing that God uses to nullify the wisdom of this world. Grace is the thing that saves you and me, and the grace today is now the same thing that God is trying to teach you and me. So let's ask him to do that and uh, make this real in our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I personally want to say, please forgive me for a life of self-obsession. I have spent way too much time worried about myself, concerned what others might think, uh, wrapped up in me, and I need once again to be freed from that. And I have this suspicion that I'm not alone, that we all struggle with this kind of ugly inner me. Jesus, you came to be completely about us. You lived every day for our glory. You died for our glory. You rose for the glory of us, your bride, the church. And now you've freed us, not just from sin, not just from death, but you've actually freed us from ourselves. Help us to be the other focused people that you've created us to be. And uh, please, work amazing things through that, not to our glory, but so that we might boast in you. In your name we pray. Amen.